for inviting me and um, and everyone for being here in the Center for New Studies for sponsoring, um, uh, putting together this conference. So I'm, I'm just going to be. I first began to grapple with settler colonialism as a structure of racialized rule through African and African diaspora studies, and in particular, um, the scholarship on apartheid in South Africa. This is not surprising, of course, as discussions of racialization of black communities do not often occur in the context of what Patrick Wolfe refers to as the concurrent racializations of Native American and US black communities. For many scholars in my two fields of engagement, the study of race has consistently depended on two paradigmatic cases of, rig of rigid racial regimes, apartheid South Africa and Jim Crow US. This was canonized by historian George Fredrickson's 1982 classic, White Supremacy, a Comparative Study in American and South African History. In this text, Fredrickson established the exceptionality of US and South African cases of racialized rule by arguing that more than any other multiracial society spawned by European expansion, these two countries have, quote, manifested over long periods of time a tendency to push the principle of differentiation by race to its logical outcome, end quote. From this thesis, which has its share of detractors, emerged a set of assumptions about the study of race in Africa and beyond. One assumption is the view that issues of race are unique to societies with particular histories of overt racial conflict. In Black America and Black South Africa, the histories of Jim Crow and apartheid, respectively, are the primary sites of racialization, the cases against which all black experience continue to be measured. For the African continent, more specifically, the South African settler colonial experience became the exceptional case for the study of race. With the decades-long intellectual and political industry at its disposal, South African apartheid was deemed the primary site of continental African racialization. Apartheid was deemed, I'm sorry, apartheid was racialization, and racialization was apartheid, and despite evidence to the contrary, race seemed to matter only in South Africa. This narrowing of the study of race in Africa depended upon a clear distinction in the understanding of the role of colonialism in Southern Africa compared to the rest of the continent. And the underlying assumption was that settler colonialism and its attendant corollary in, in for, of formal apartheid was the only way to trace the history of race in Africa. My ongoing work has been to challenge this assumption on two fronts. The first is to argue, following Mahmoud Bamdani, that apartheid was the, indeed the norm rather than the exception in colonial Africa. It existed as a form of institutional segregation marked by racial difference. This institutional segregation was what the British called indirect rule and the French called association and was the common colonial state form of racial domination. What is distinctive about apartheid in South Africa is that its formalization in 1948 at the beginning of anti-colonial agitation throughout the continent made for its particularly harsh features. For to apply indirect rule after 400 years of contact and settlement, that is to rule the natives through their own institutions, one first had to create the native and then push the natives back into the confines of native institutions. The discourse of apartheid in South Africa then was an idealization of the more general practice of indirect rule. The second front of my challenge to the exceptionalism of the South African experience of race, and that fits within the broad theme of this conference, is to ask how to account for the racial legacies of colonial rule 
its traces of racial elimination, genocide, in a context that did not depend on settlement. Patrick Wolfe begins traces of history with the argument that race is colonialism speaking, the brother, colonialism speaking. His specific case studies explore the racial regimes of settler colonialism, their logic of domination and ongoing practices, while Africa, especially the paradigmatic South African case, is not one of the cases. The continent is not one of the cases explored in the book. The continent and its people shared a common history of colonial invasion, expropriation, elimination, that link, that link it to, to other communities within global structures of race and power. My modest goal today is to in, include a trace of African history in the discussion of race and colonialism. But I do so through a framework that forces thinking about the concurrent racialization of settler and non-settler colonialism in Africa. Specifically, I focus on the British indirect rule, on British indirect rule in West Africa and the colonial practice of making the native, what I call nativization. Official and unofficial colonial correspondence about Africa is complete with references to the native. From deliberations on the native question to disputes over how to define a native, such conversations point to negotiations around particular distinctions of race, culture, and hegemonic power. Through colonial discourses about the native and practices of native making, the institutionalization of racial rule came to be hidden beneath the power, beneath local articulations of power. Colonial domination in Africa was distinctive. It was the site of a significant shift in British colonial policy from the zeal of the civilizing mission to a hegemonic cultural project of incorporation, harnessing the moral, historical, and community impetus behind local custom to a larger colonial project. With the expanded focus on the notion of the customary, we see the marshalling of indigenous culture, real, perceived, and invented, for authoritarian rule. In dealing with the native question, that is the most effective way for a small number of conquerors to rule a majority, colonial powers followed two paths, direct rule and indirect rule. Direct rule came first and was aimed at providing a small local elite access to European culture and civilization in return for strong allies in the colonial enterprise. Indirect rule, on the other hand, was premised on the perceived diffusion of colonial power through native custom. Indirect rule was about incorporation of the colonized masses without assimilation. Key to this incorporation into indirect rule is the configuration of the racial or ethnic or what most people call tribal identities for Africans as well as Europeans. Thus, the colonial state had a two-tier structure. On the ground, the subject population was ruled by a constellation of ethnically defined native institutions, which were in turn supervised by European officials, non-natives, deployed at, from a racial pinnacle at the center. But this two-tier rule constructed and reproduced two sets of identities in a dual move for Africans. In the first instance, there was a distinction between native and European that was based on notions of absolute racial and cultural difference. In the second movement, the native, while categorically representing the racialized masses of, of, of subjects under rule, was subdivided into distinct tribal groupings. Tribal identities were associated solely with the native. The European, therefore, was racialized as white and superior, but not tribalized or ethnicized. The native, on the other hand, was both ethnicized and racialized. But for purposes of rule, discourse, and colonial practices of divide and conquer, her racialization was subsumed under her tribal slash ethnic identification, affiliation. 
Most significant, however, was that the crude violence of colonial rule was disseminated through, native, through the native authorities, where custom also became the language of force in everything from land distribution to forced labor to direct taxation to the colonial state. The split between the native authority and civil or colonial authority, clear legal and political distinctions, was racially framed and based on the biological understanding of race as, as encompassing physical, somatic, genetic, and cultural difference. Thus, the colonial state's racecraft was integral to the colonial project. Its major strength lies in the way that its architects were able to construct a system in which racial ideology was embedded through institutions and restructured, indeed renamed, indeed renamed in a way that hegemonically incorporated the colonized. In this sense, indirect rule was a racial project, established through the racializing processes that constructed the black native, culturally, racially, and juridically against the white European, and as well as the quote-unquote Asiatic middlemen. This rigid racial distinction was hardly lived by such by the, as such by the majority of the colonized. However, because in practice, it worked not as a form of exclusion, but, as, but rather as incorporation, as hegemony. Nativization was racialization, but this racialization worked through ethnicization, the constitution and organization of a constellation of tribal groupings whose incorporation into colonial society depended on mediating its racial, cultural separation from civil and civilized society of white European colonizers. The racial effects of the established the racialization effected by the establishment of an indirect colonial rule was maintained through rigid practices of racial and cultural differentiation. This, of course, occurred in many arenas, from education to religion to business practices to residential segregation. As Omdani points out, neither institutional segregation nor apartheid was a South African invention. There is not a clear example, for example, um, then in the development of the city of Accra where I do the bulk of my research, as Ghana's capital in the late 1800s on the principle of a rigid, a rigid racial residential segregation. Accra was divided into various racially distinct areas with the European town and administrative areas, the native town, and the European residential areas, the three distinct areas. The European residential areas were built upon the elevated parts of Accra. They were filled with large houses on spacious lots, surrounded by parks and green spaces. Significantly, designated native areas were to be separated from the European residential and commercial areas. The green and open spaces were strictly reserved for European extracurricular and sporting activities. The segregation was often not pursued in, in explicit racial language. Instead, as the colonial archive demonstrates, spatial planning and segregation were often justified in the languages of health, hygiene, and sanitation. Through health and sanitation mandates, colonial authorities worked especially hard at maintaining what they considered to be the integrity of the European residential areas and in the process protecting the integrity of racial whiteness. Residential segregation was bolstered by discrimination in the provision of education and health care, as well as through the enforcement of the social color guard. The, health, the colonial health infrastructure was segregated and linked to the need to limit contact between Europeans and natives. Hospitals and other health and social services were segregated. Even later, colonial progressive educational policies depended upon indirect rules, racialist distinction between African educational needs compared to those of Europeans. While there were no blatant, and this is the, the, the distinction I think, while there were no blatant um, 
uh, signs forbidding Africans from in, uh, entering establishments or be, to be served in them. European-run clubs, bars, hotels, churches, all operated under the color guard and practiced segregation. It was not considered appropriate to invite Africans into European homes, and only a few rare and exceptional men were accepted as honorary Europeans. The historical processes of constructing natives as the racially inferior opposites of European allows room to, to understand discussions about race and identity on the African continent both, and both within settler and non-settler states. Nativization concretizes shifting modes of African self-construction that began at the moment of contact and submergence within the forces of European empire making. It gave Africans race and shaped them culturally, politically, and materially as black within a global hierarchy of white power privilege. At the same time, the mode of implementation of the process of nativization localized that self-conception. Africans were also and primarily represented as tribal and ethnic with seeming autochthonous traditions that naturalize the idea of ethnicity. This predicament of the interrelation of race and ethnicity configured within white supremacy is cemented in, in how scholars approach African phenomena today through discourses of the tribe, ethnic, but not through the enduring practices of race and global white supremacy. Studies on colonial racism have recounted the numerous ways that the colonial state apparatus established white supremacy and maintained power. Yet it remains important to explore the mode of colonial control, how the creation of the particularly black native and the white European depended on the racecraft of indirect rule that set the foundation for both the structural white supremacy as well as anti-colonial racial consciousness among Africans. Colonialism on the African continent was not a singular event and it took many forms. While all these forms were under constant negotiation, they all rotated on the axis of race and the modalities of gender, sexuality, civilization, and religion. But in putting the legacy of indirect rule against commonsense notions of the uniqueness of South African settler colonialism and as the primary side of race on the African continent, my goal here was to really force open space. It is for tracing African experience in the ongoing discussions of colonialism, indigeneity, and racialization. 